We're in the story of King Saul in 1 Samuel. Last week we talked about how uh, God had just in this, did this amazing work of restoring Israel, uh, really restoring them into the knowledge of His grace through a covenant uh, renewal ceremony. And at the end of that, God said basically that in light of God's mercy, in light of everything that God has done for you, from rescuing you out of slavery in Egypt to this present day, continuing to rescue you every time you run off and get yourself in trouble. In light of all of that, he says to Saul, he says, listen to God and trust Him. And so Samuel had one job in this chapter, to wait on the Lord. Let's see how he does as we read through it. Would you please stand one more time out of respect for the reading of God's Word. This is 1 Samuel chapter 13. And so Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash in the hill country of Bethel. And 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. And Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it, and Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, let the Hebrews hear, and all Israel heard it, and said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines, and other people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. And they came up and encamped at Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. And the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed. And the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of God and Gilead. And Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. Well, he waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. And so Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me, and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. And as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and to greet him. And Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, well, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. And so I forced myself and I offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal, and the rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, and the people who were present with them stayed in Geba of Benjamin, but the Philistines encamped at Michmash. 
And raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned toward Ophrah, to the land of Shual. Another company turned toward Beth Horon, and another company turned toward the border that looks down on the valley of Zeboim, towards the wilderness. And now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and the mattocks, and a third of a shekel for sharpening the axes and for setting the goads. And so on the day of battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan. But Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we thank you for your word and the way it encourages us, Lord, and shows us that even when things look bleak, that you are with us, Lord. Uh, That even when we are clinging to the things that we want to trust in, Lord, you are with us pulling those things away so that we might trust in you and not rely on our own failable and unreliable power, but instead rely upon your power, Lord. So we pray that you would help us to see that today, that this uh, is actually merciful. And we pray especially that you would help us to see the beauty of the Lord Jesus as we look at this passage, Lord. Please give us minds to understand and hearts to obey your perfect word as you promise to beautify your afflicted ones in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I get to go to China once a year uh, to teach a class at a seminary in China, and the Chinese have some bizarre uh, ideas about entertainment, one of which is something called the coiling dragon, which is a a completely glass walkway that snakes around the top of a mountain 5,000 feet in the air, completely out of gla- made out of, out of glass. And tons of people go to this thing. Uh, about half of them chicken out before they even go out onto the bridge. Another half of the people that make it out on the bridge freak out halfway through and end up doing the rest of it on all fours. Some people even freak out so bad that they freeze up and they have to go get them out because there's no, it's just glass. It's just completely transparent. And as you look down, you see nothing but a 5,000 foot drop beneath your feet. If you've ever had the opportunity to climb or to, to do the hike on to Half Dome in Yosemite and look over the edge, it's pretty much the same view. Just 5,000 feet of nothingness underneath you. For those who brave it, they are treated to beautiful views, but uh, most people, at least half, have a hard time doing it because it's one thing to intellectually know that the glass will hold you up. It's one thing to see other people walking on it. It's a whole nother thing to trust it to the point where you personally walk out onto the glass. And faith is like that. It's one thing to say we trust in God when our feet are planted firmly in the ground of all the things that we lean on, that, we, that give us support, that we are able to trust in for our safety and for our security, for our pleasure in the world. But when and if, or if and when, God pulls the rug out 
from under us and we don't have anything left solid to lean on, well, that's the point when what we tell ourselves we believe in ends and real faith begins. And that's what's happening here to King Saul. This is really a sad chapter because it tells, it tells the story of the beginning of the collapse, the fissures and the cracks in the faith of King Saul. It's balanced out by chapter 14, which is next, where God shows in the next chapter we're going to see that God is in control of all this, bringing out this amazing ending to this whole story. But for here, to just read chapter 13 is sad. It's very sad because Saul has talked a good game all the way up to this point. But when he's got to the point where it came down to it, we see that Saul was willing to trust in his army. Saul was willing to trust in human power. But when God put him in a place where he had to trust in God and God alone for his salvation from the Philistines, he wouldn't do it. He couldn't do it. And so this is the beginning of the end of the first king of Israel. But in it, God is teaching us some important lessons. And the, that, that is these. These are the important lessons. First, that God may take away our treasures in order to show us His. Second big truth is that religion isn't about getting God to listen to us. And third, religion is about God getting us to listen to Him. So that's what we're going to do. Let's look at those one thing at a time. First, that God may take away our treasures to show us His. I have a really good friend that at one point in his life was on top of the world, had married the girl that he chased forever, had bought a beautiful home, had a career, was making a lot of money, uh, and then slowly and surely God began to remove one thing after another from his life. The wife left, he lost the house, uh, and it got down to the point really where he had really had nothing left but this dog that he loved that really... Uh, helped him get through all that tough time. And at the end of all of that trouble, the dog ended up getting cancer and the dog died. And I was on, my, on the phone with my friend talking about this and he was like so distraught and so angry with God saying, he was saying he wouldn't even let me keep my damn dog. God had put him in a hard place and left him having taken everything away from him sitting there you can imagine how that might feel and God is putting Saul in a similar hard place right here let me explain what just happened Saul had a couple chapters ago big military victory he'd mustered 300,000 men then he sent them all home uh and his son, Jonathan, went and attacked a Philistine garrison. The Philistines then retaliated in full force and came in with 300,000 men of their own and cut Saul off from all, of his, uh, all the supply lines to the north so that no one could come and help him. Uh, and when he ended up at the end of the day, it became, it became so bad that even the small, the small standing army that he had of 3,000 men started to desert and defect and hide in holes and cisterns and tombs and some of them even crossed the border to the east and just got out of the country because the odds were so bad. At one point, Saul was, had 300,000 troops and he was facing 
uh, Nahash, the king of the Ammonites. We don't know how many troops that he had, but it was probably Saul had an overwhelming force. And this time now he's facing probably 300,000 troops as the, sand, the troops as the sand of the sea, professional military, and he's got 600 men. And so it's one thing, it's one thing to trust in God when you've got 330,000 soldiers on your side, but it's a whole nother thing to trust God when you've got 300,000 soldiers against you and you've got 600. That's a whole different level of faith. What would you think? What would you think if that was you? If God had whittled you down to the point where you had 600 guys left and you were facing 300,000 people. Maybe you're doing maybe something similar to that has happened to you in your life where you have lost a house or you've lost a career or you've lost your health or you've lost or are losing a marriage or some other significant relationship. Uh the one thing that was most important to you, your earthly treasure that made everything okay. My friend who went through that process, you know, what he felt like, what he said he felt like was that when God took his dog away, that God was punishing him. He felt like God was, had abandoned him, really. Uh, and that's what Saul thinks. Saul looks at this happening And he says, this is bad. This is God's punishing me. This is God's abandoning of me. But the reality is, what's happening here, and Saul should have known this, is that God is taking away all of Saul's treasure, the things that he's trusting him to show him his own incomparable power. God wants to show Saul the power of God that is at is available to be at work for him. And Saul should have known this because this story should have reminded him of the story of Gideon from the book of Judges. Probably not that far in the past, there was a judge of Israel who had 30,000 men. He went out to, to, to face this overwhelming force of, of a foreign army. And God said, too many guys. I need you to whittle it down. And eventually whittled it down to only 300 men. And Gideon, through that whole story, is freaking out. You know, he keeps like, he's, you know, putting the fleece out. He's like asking God, are you sure this is what we're going to do? Are you sure this is what you want to do? He's understandably a little bit nervous about the fact that he's got 30,000 guys against 300,000 guys. And God says, too many. Let's do this with 300. But at the end of the day, what happens? At the end of the day, God comes through and wins that battle for them and shows Gideon that his even with, a, even with a big army, it's still, there's only so much that can do. It's still unreliable. It's still an earthly power. And God says, take that away. And in your weakness, let me show you the power of God that can work in and through you. And that's what God is doing to Saul. He's giving him this opportunity to relinquish all the things that he trusts in, all the unreliable things that he trusts in, in order to experience the power of God on his behalf, my friend, after the fact, years later, as God had brought him through that terrible ordeal, after the fact, I asked him, what was the lesson that you learned in that? And he said, 
He said that houses built on the, sand, on the foundation of sand cannot stand. God was teaching him that our earthly treasures, whatever they are, are ultimately unreliable. They may last, they may not last, but God wants to replace our trust in things that are eternal, things that last, things that cannot fall apart on us. And I know more stories like this than I can count on, on both of my hands, including, including my own. And so, look, maybe that's where you're at right now. You may be in a spot where God has or is systematically separating you from your earthly treasure, from the things that you really trusted in, from the things that you really sought your comfort out of, which is where you are really, or we are really putting our faith. And maybe it feels to you like God is punishing you, or it feels to you like God has abandoned you, that it's bad. And we're going to talk more next week about what God is really doing in the story with Saul, but I want you to consider the fact that more likely, the more likely scenario is that God is closer to you now than he has ever been, and that he is walking you through this difficult time to bring you into something better. So if that's true, and it is, how do we then respond to things like this? It's first I want to look at how we shouldn't respond. And that's how Saul responded. Saul responded by thinking that, uh, that religion was really about getting God to listen to him. That religion was about getting God to listen to us. Now there's all kind of, all kind of debate over exactly what it was that Saul did in this story that was so wrong. Was it that he didn't wait for Samuel to show up? Was it that he wasn't authorized to, to, do the, to give the sacrifice uh, to earn or to, to get the rebuke from Samuel that you have done foolishly, you have not kept the commandment of your Lord? What was it that, actually, that he actually did? At the end of the day, the principle underlying it is what Saul did wrong was that he treated the sacrifice as a way of getting God to do His will rather than waiting on the Lord, waiting for Samuel to show up to tell him what God's will was. Big difference. Samuel wasn't just supposed to offer the sacrifice as the prophet and the priest, but he was also the mouthpiece of God. The prophet was called the mouth of God. He spoke the word of God to the king and spoke God's will, and, and, and if you wanted to discern what God would have you do in his wisdom, the prophet would speak that to you. And that was what was happening at Gilgal. Before they went into battle, the prophet was supposed to come, offer the sacrifice, and then give Saul the word of God. And what Samuel did was, when he had that choice between waiting for Samuel and listening to the word of God and learning what God wanted, Instead, his faith in the things that were so quickly dissipating, the soldiers leaving, troops deserting, he decided to go for it on his own. And instead of waiting for the word of God, he instead performed this ritual as a means of getting God to do what Saul wanted him to do. The word, when it says sought the favor of God in verse 12, that's not really a 
It's not really a positive term. It means, it means to appease, but it really means to... It's used to, as, as, a, as a way of striving to soften by caress or to flatter. Uh, in other words, Saul treated the sacrifice like magic and used it as a tool to get God to do what he wanted rather than waiting and hearing what God would say he wanted Saul to do. Now, now we hear that and we say to ourselves, I say to myself, but we're Protestants, we don't do that. Right? Those are other churches that have empty rituals and people just kind of go through the motions and think, you know, that they're, and, and for whatever the motivation they're doing it for, and we say, that's those churches, that's not us. We're Protestants. We don't ever do that. Question. <laughs> have you ever been, like, afraid that something wasn't going to play out the way you wanted it to play out, and you said to yourself, or you were tempted to, like, skip your Bible reading that morning, or to skip your prayer, and you thought to yourself, well, I better not do that, because if I skip my Bible reading or I skip my prayer time in the morning, God's not going to do this for me. <laughs> How do I know? How do I know you do that? How do I know you do that? Because I have to preach sermons every week, and by the end of the week, when I'm out of time for sermons, I become a magician <laughs> praying <laughs> for God to save me, that God will make my sermon great, not for your benefit, but so that I don't feel like an idiot up here. I do it every, every week. And that's not faith. That's magic. Or maybe there's something coming up that's super important that you want to happen. That's not a fear thing, but you're, ex- so you're extra careful and double down on all your religious practices so that God will make this thing come through and happen, right? That's not faith. That's magic. I mean, there's a caveat in here. Let me just sidestep for a minute and say, uh, the disciplines of prayer and fasting are God has given us to like to plead with Him for certain things that we want, right? Those things need to be in, in the will of God and accor- according to His will, according to what's good and true and beautiful. But it, what changes it is those things really are things that God has given us as a means of worship. Our spiritual practices, our prayer life, our devotional life, reading the Bible, coming to, wor- coming to worship are, really, are, are given to us as, as, as means of worshiping God in gratitude for what he's already done for us in Christ. And then through that process, God is growing us in faith, even giving us more in it. They're not means to make God do what we want. There was nothing, so there's nothing wrong with that that sacrifice that Saul made actually was it was representative it was the symbol the whole burnt offering was the symbol of Christ's death and 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 the 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 atonement or the covering of our sins there was nothing wrong with that what was wrong with it was that Saul had his own narrative about how things had to go in this situation he had to have a lot of soldiers to win even though he knew Gideon had won with 300, just blanked out of his mind. And so he went in and did that ceremony as a way to get God to do his plan rather than listening to what God said. He manipulated God. And here's, and here's where the story gets really sad. After he does that, Samuel leaves. He doesn't even finish doing, uh, he doesn't even finish doing the offering. 
the rest of the offerings in, doing what, in, 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 in choosing that path Saul had really cut himself off and was no longer privileged to hear the word of God, to hear the discernment of God on his behalf. And it's a picture from that point forward of really um, Samuel leaving, Saul retreating, and the Philistines just taking total control over Israel. And so if religion is not about getting God to listen to us, what is it about? Religion is about God getting us to listen to Him. Amen? And the part, really, the part of this story that seems to be the saddest is really the only part of the story that actually contains some light. Let me read verses 13 and 14 again. It says, And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. Because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Now if this was a movie, movie of King Saul, or if this was, we were using the analogy of the fall of Anakin Skywalker... Uh, or some other movie where the hero has just totally failed and lost and been crushed. We would be sad. Would be the hero has just lost. Saddest moment in the movie, right? But this is actually the highlight of the story because God in his mercy is telling Samuel two important things and both of them are gracious. The first thing, the first gracious thing that God is telling Samuel and telling us is that you just can't establish your own individual eternal kingdom. You can't do it. Listen, listen to the narrative again. Let me show you this, how many similarities or how many tragic parallels the narrator uh, calls to our attention that parallel the story of Adam in the Garden of Eden and the fall of man. God makes Saul the head over his kingdom in the promised land, just like he made Adam the head over all creation in the garden. Saul's commanded to keep the command of God. That's the same words that are used in the Garden of Eden. Adam was to keep the garden, keep the commands of God in the garden. Uh, there's a threat that if he fails, he'll be swept away. But there's also a promise of this eternal kingdom. Saul ends up breaking the command for what he thinks is a very good reason. And then Samuel comes as the mouth of God and asks him, what have you done? And Samuel immediately starts blame shifting. It was the troops' fault. It was your fault, Samuel, because you didn't show up in time. It was the Philistines' fault. And so I was pressed. I had no other choice. I, it was distasteful to me to do this, but I had to, to seek the Lord's favor. Convinced himself that an act of disobedience was what he needed to do to secure God's favor. And then he loses the kingdom for himself and for all of his descendants. Now, how is that gracious? How can that possibly be gracious? Because it speaks truth to him and truth to us. The reality is that not Adam, not Saul, not anyone, including me, not you, is capable of setting up their own individual kingdoms outside of God. Can't be done. And that's really the purpose of the law. 
Every week we read the law to remind ourselves that we cannot make ourselves holy enough to the point where we are righteous before God. We are we're lawbreakers. We are sinners who outside of a Savior have lost the eternal kingdom. We're more like Saul than we want to admit. Just like Saul, we tend to put our trust in our own versions of treasure, our own versions of truth, and then cling to them. Just like Saul, we tend to use our religious practice as a way to bargain with God for him to do our will rather and, and to keep our own versions of truth and treasure. And in doing that, we cut ourselves off from the power of God. And so it's a gracious warning to listen that religion isn't about us getting God to do what we want, but for us to listen to what God is saying to us. And what God says to us is the second gracious thing. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. God has established an eternal kingdom for us in Christ. There's one more big parallel to that story where the Lord, in the midst of really these these curse sanctions or telling Saul that he had blown it, and all the, what was going to happen to them, in the middle of that, there's this promise. God is going to, God is going to send a man who will establish an eternal kingdom. And temporary, the temporary target of that is obviously King David, but King David himself is a picture of the greater reality, who is Jesus. And God is promising here to establish for us an eternal and unshakable kingdom with its ultimate fulfillment in the Lord Jesus. And so that's what really God is trying to tell us through the whole Bible. And that's the big mistake people make. People hear the law and the Bible uh, and they think really that the Bible or the Christian, uh, the Christian religion is really like every other religious system in the world, that it's a way of doing things to get God to give us favor. But that couldn't be farther from the truth. What God is telling us over and over and over again is it is not about ritual or religious practices that control God into listening to us and giving us what we want. But instead, true religion is about God speaking to us about our true condition through the law so that we see that we are sinners in desperate need of a Savior. And then He follows that up immediately by telling us that we have a true king, that our true solution is Jesus and that was we trust in him, meaning we put our faith in his finished work of, of his work on the cross for us. God promises that his power flows out of that and brings us in to his eternal kingdom that can never fail. That is open to anyone who would listen and receive it by faith. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and how it tells us how gracious you are, even though sometimes your mercy to us seems harsh, Lord. As we look through the Bible, we see the terms of the wrath of God almost 
in every place in the Bible where it speaks of your wrath, it's talking about either allowing us to experience the consequence of our sin or pulling things away from us so that we would let go of our, of our, of our addictions to the things of this world and instead place our trust in you. And when we do that, Lord, you promise to bring us joy and contentment and peace in this world and even more in the next, Lord. So we pray, Lord, that we would be people who would listen to you, who would listen to your word as it, uh, in the Bible, to listen to your word preached, but also to listen to how you are working in our lives, Lord, and as we see you taking things away from us, to not say that's bad, that's punishment, that's an abandonment, to say that is God's mercy to me to bring us into a more beautiful place, to take away the things that we think are treasure and to give us the things that God says are treasure with his intimacy with him and to know him, and to know his beauty. And so, Lord, we pray that that would be us, that we would seek your kingdom and that you would bless us, Lord. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.